Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, the podcast about comedy with me, your host, Mark Decano. This podcast has five stars on Spotify at time of recording. If you like it, maybe you'll give it five stars too. And if you don't like it, don't give it one star. Just ignore it and hope it goes away. A policy I use to great effect on my marriage. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy. If you like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is another rising star in comedy with a debut hour at this year's Edinburgh Fringe. With her comedy informed by an international upbringing and a career in advertising, she is charismatic, stylish, sassy and very, very funny. It's stand-up comedian Bronwyn Sweeney. Let's crack on. Let's do it. Okay, so straight away, you've got your name, Welsh Irish, born in Blackpool, and yet, as you wonderfully put it, you present American. So what is the origin story there? Oh, great. Yeah, I mean, the origin story is I was born in Blackpool uh, to an Irish father and a Zimbabwean mother mm-hmm. all the way back in 1986. Um, my dad thinks that the name Bronwyn is a is an Irish name, but I can I can <laughs> confirm Anything with a win or that sounds remotely Middle Earthian is definitely Welsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just my name. We've all got kind of Irish names, me and my siblings. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I yeah, I was born in Blackpool, but we moved around with my dad's job. He was an engineer. So after Blackpool, uh, I moved to a place called Darlington in the north of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I moved to Athens, Greece, and I went to an international American school. Mm-hmm. And that is where the accent first started to kind of morph into something um, <laughs> not English. Uh, I think it's like, I don't know why, it, well, it's an American international, it was an American international school. So I think the the default accent tends to be American. Yeah. And I don't think, I didn't get made fun of. I think people were mostly just fascinated by the British accent, but I remember consciously trying to kind of sound like everyone else. Right. You know, I remember the day that like I came home and called my mom, like mom, and she was like, all right, whatever, like <laughs> just let her do it, you know. And then we ended up staying in Greece for almost six years. So you know, the accent fully morphed into kind of like American. And then I went to high school in Florida. Right. And that's where it kind of like solidified. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. Yeah. So just, I don't know. And I, I've been living in London for 14 years now. And like, I thought that my accent would change a little, but I kind of feel like I've picked a lane and I just need to stick with it. <laughs> because I don't want to be one of those people with like a half English accent. Start speaking with that, like, distracting upward inflection you know what I mean like all right everyone should we go to the pub like I don't know just <laughs> like like yeah. Madonna who I love Madonna I don't know why I said that but you know what I mean like, <laughs> I think you just kind of have to yeah yeah do you find it helps your comedy to have an American accent in England or hinders oh god I mean I think it for me I mean I I probably have an insecurity about it only because the accent, and this is what like my show is about. It's like my accent, I feel British on the inside. I sound American on the outside. And I weirdly think the American accent became like a like like armor. Do you know what I mean? When I first started doing comedy, I didn't really have, I didn't know what like my persona was on stage or like my my tone of voice. And I feel like I was so nervous, I sounded more American on stage. I don't know if it was this like if you just come out loud and brash, you know, yeah. then it was kind of like faking it till I, till I made it, I suppose. And I, and I feel like my onstage persona became like this upward, you know, like high volume American person. And then I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't slip back <laughs> like how I normally am. So I, it's helpful in that. I think it, it makes me come across more confident than I am, but I think it hinders my comedy in the sense that I always have to address it. 
Like, mm. I feel like I can't just come on and do a set about, I don't know, like some of the things I want to talk about because I feel like I have to address my accent all the time. I have to let the audience know that I'm not what they think I am. I don't know. Right. Um, and sometimes I wish I didn't have to bother. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you could always flip it the other way and use it as a defense. You know, if you don't get the jokes, it's because I've got my American humor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, it, it does help. I have a joke in my set about how, in my show, about how it's a lot easier to play dumb, like when you have an American <laughs> accent, like, because there's, there's huge, like, I have really big cultural gaps from moving around mm. a lot. Like, I feel like I went to university in Italy and I didn't have internet the whole time I was there in my flat. I was there from like 2003 right. to like 2008. And I feel like, you know, there's there's parts of like American culture I don't get because I wasn't living there. And then there's parts of British yeah. culture like I don't get. So, you know, I'll be doing like a pub quiz with my friends and they'll be like, oh, you lived in America. Like, you should know this. And I'll be like, oh, I, oh, there goes the side. <laughs> And I and I genuinely don't know it. Or there'll be like a TV show that everyone in England watched. And I was like, no, don't know it, you know. So just, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've touched on a lot of things already, but let's dial it right back again and find out um, when did comedy become a part of your life? How did that become something you became aware of? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I would say, to be fully honest, um, I, I think I was always kind of like a funny kid. I liked performing and I remember vividly, I was living in the US. I was, I was, you know, in high school in the US, and um, my basketball coach passed away, sadly. And we were at her funeral. I was about 15 years old. And um, I remember everyone was going up and making these really sad, sad, as you do, it was a funeral, right? Like, you know, everyone's having, you know, having sad things to say. And I remember having really funny memories of this coach. And I don't know what came over me. I was like, I just feel like I need to break the tension here. And I wasn't like an outgoing kid in high school. If anything, mm. I was pretty shy. And something just compelled me to get up there and talk at this funeral to like a really big room. And I told a funny story and everyone laughed. Yeah. And I remember just thinking like, this is so powerful and gratifying and special that like, you know, number one, that I can make random people in a room laugh, but it felt really cathartic. And I think that was the first little seed that planted in my head that, Mm. oh like you are funny and you can make people laugh and you can use this as like a power and then for years I didn't do anything with it and then I um you know I talk a lot about working in advertising and mm -hmm. I think in advertising there's a lot of overlap with comedy because you're often presenting ideas to people who don't know you yeah. who can decide not to listen to you or pay attention and you know if you can get their attention within the first few seconds and my the agency that I was working at at the time gave everyone money to go spend on a passion project. Right. And I thought, if I'm not paying for it, I'll go do a comedy course. <laughs> and I did this weekend comedy course. It was like two days. And I was dreadful. Like, I wasn't funny. <laughs> I couldn't translate writing ads into writing jokes. Like, I, I didn't know how to do it. And I did the showcase. And like, my I still have the video on my phone. Mm. Like, the, the jokes were really, you could see the setup, like they're like, hey, what's the deal with, you know, yeah. like airport security, <laughs> you know, so cringe. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, I didn't get the bug like everyone talks about. Hmm. And I left it alone for years, like, no, like a year, I'd say. Hmm. And then I went to go watch a friend at an open mic night from the course. And like, she was good. But like, I was like, hang on. I kind of feel like if I try this again, I could do I could do that. If I go away and I write the things that I actually want to talk about, not what like a course taught me to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and that was like, God, like eight years ago, but I've always been like very slow on the open mic. Um, I'm a very slow learner. I was just like, I didn't like, 
it was just something for fun. It was a side hustle. And I don't think I started taking it seriously until lockdown. Like um, Mm. I realized, oh, I kind of miss this, this thing. And I have things I want to say and things I want to talk about. And I entered the Funny Women Awards like on a whip. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I did terribly in competitions. I was like, oh, I, I don't care anymore. And I think maybe the not caring is what helped because somehow I did really well in that. And I think that was my sign. It was like, okay, maybe you're not terrible at this. Maybe you hmm. should keep going. So I feel like I've been doing it for eight, but but seriously for about two years. Right. Okay. You say about you didn't take it really seriously until lockdown. So what was it about lockdown? What was it about restrictions or your environment at that time that made you suddenly decide, okay, I need to knuckle down and make this a focus now that I can't physically? Oh, I want anything I can. <laughs> you tell me I'm not allowed to do something and that's what I want to do it. And I think that was it. I think I just had so much. It was the first time I was very fortunate and I still feel very grateful that my lockdown experience, I, I kept my full-time job, you know, money was not a stress for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that allowed my brain to relax and kind of think about comedy for fun for once. Yeah. Like, and I had kind of just cobbled together my favorite bits. And when the pubs reopened for a bit, there's this, um, there's this comedy night in London called um, the blackout. And it's just, yeah. It's like a gong show and it, it, I bombed at it years <laughs> before and I was never going back there again. And then I went on a, I think I went on like a Tinder date, I think with another comedian and he was so nice. And he was just like, you know, that's the only gig that's going to make you better, right? Like you have to go do it <laughs> because there's a big crowd. You know what I mean? It forces you to to think on your feet. Mm-hmm. And I, and I remember just going, I think he's right. So I signed up for the next one and I took those bits of material and I ended up beating the the clock. Mm-hmm. And from that I got a video. And I think just, yeah, there was something in lockdown that clicked. I thought, I just can't stop writing and thinking about it. So that must mean something, yeah. you know, and the fact that, you know, we were going through a really terrible time in the world. And the thing that I wanted to do was stand up. You know, I think it meant something. Mm. So once you decided that you were going to go serious and and really sort of put the effort into it, what did you expect? What was it about comedy that surprised you as a career? I mean, comedy's it's 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 constantly surprising. I mean, mm. my expectations have always been quite I don't know. I think I'm one of those people who I I there's no in between for me. It's like all or nothing, you know? Mm. And I feel like I either want to be like the most successful person at something I'm doing or I don't want to do it. But I think with comedy, what's so nice is you realize there's so many people out there doing it and everyone's mm. got their own story. And I think for me, it just I just went, I used to be, I wouldn't say competitive with other comedians. I think it was more just that scarcity mindset that like, oh, does the world need another American woman talking about like her dating life? And then suddenly <laughs> I was like, yeah, but so what? Like every, you know, like you have your way of telling stories and yeah. they're just as valid as everyone else. So just keep going with it. And I think what I, what changed in my mind was giving myself permission to go, your stories are valid to talk about too. Yeah. And you don't have to be the best at this. Like you don't have to, because there, there is no real measurement of best. I don't think with comedy, I think for yeah. me, it's like, can I go out there and do a gig and be proud of what I said? And did it resonate with, a couple people in the audience cool to me like that's successful yeah. and i think what's nice about comedy now is i'm just kind of rolling with it i knew that fringe was something i was going to do so for me i was like okay that's the focus i have i have nothing else that i need to worry about i don't need to worry about 
trying to audition for anything. I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to become TikTok famous. I just want to work on this hour and make it an hour show that I'm proud of delivering, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So when you think back now to that first gig, what was going through your mind before you do comedy for the first time? Oh God. I think I'm a bit delusional. Like I think <laughs> um, I really thought I was going to get up there and like crush. And <laughs> what surprised me was how nervous I was. Yeah. I was so, I, I was, I felt sick. I remember I only had about three minutes worth of material and it felt like an eternity, you know? So I don't know if it's the way I learned to do stand up was to write it all down and rehearse it. I wasn't one of those comedians who could like jot down a punchline and, and find their way to it on stage live. Like I hate silence. So mm. that first stand up gig, I was so nervous. I just, I was like, will there ever be a time when I won't hate the moment before performing? Which I thought was odd, right. like that I that I actually did not enjoy that moment at all. <laughs> wow. And what about now? I still get really nervous. Yeah. Like, um, and that's the thing. It's like, but but again, in doing it for for so long now and realizing that everyone's got their own, for lack of a like, I know this is such a wanky word, but like <laughs> everyone's on their own journey with it. And I think, yes. you know, for me, the way I learned to do comedy was write my stuff down and rehearse it. And yeah. it might not be the smartest way to learn how to do something, but it works for me. It make it makes me feel like I've got some sense of control, but you know, hmm. I think it's, it's still something I, I don't get as nervous as I used to. Like there were, there right. were times and, and that, that I think has a lot to do with why I was so slow to get into it at the beginning, because I just dreaded it so much. Like I would do one open mic night every like two weeks and go like, wasn't that <laughs> so brave. And then I would look at other people on social media who were doing like five gigs a week. And I was like, how are they doing this? You know, but then I realized like the more you do it, the better it gets. And I was like, okay, well, well, that makes sense. You know? So I get yeah. nervous now mostly because I, I want it to go well. And I, and I realized as someone with like a history of anxiety, like that anxiety, sometimes it's hard to distinguish whether it's good or bad, mm. but like a lot of the times I'm nervous because I'm excited. I'm not nervous because I'm dreading it. Let's say. Right. You talked a little bit about competitions and you mentioned funny women. Um, obviously there's a BBC new comedian you entered. And and then you've mentioned things like the blackout gong shows and what have you. How do you feel about competitions in general? Do you know, before Funny Women, I would have been like, you know what? I don't think competitions are good. But, you know, <laughs> I think because I did terribly in them. Um, I, think <laughs> I am forever grateful to Funny Women because it has it has changed my life. So mm. in my experience, you know, and, it, and it's my personal experience, I think competitions are really helpful. I mean, they can be, right? Not for everyone, but mm. I understand that what they do is they can, you know, open your network. You can meet people through them. They can give you a platform that you just simply would not get from mm. hustling on the open mic scenes. I think they are they can be validating as much as they are disheartening and soul-destroying, right? Yeah. And for the first few years that I tried to enter them, I didn't do well in them, but looking back now, I really don't think I was ready. Do you know what I mean? That that's just my my own experience. Yeah. Um, I think they can be. I think they can be great. I think the only time they're not great is if you start to to judge yourself by how well. If that's the only metric you have for your success, because right. I think there are ways to be successful in comedy without the competitions, and plenty of people, plenty of people are, but yeah. they they can really help you. Yeah. 
What about the kind of comedian that you are? We, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit uh, earlier on, but do you see yourself as a as an observational comedian, as a storyteller? What about the style of comedy that you do drew you to it? Why why not uh, characters that sort of thing? So this is my oh well, I mean, storytelling is my thing. I love mm. it's it's where I feel comfortable because I think life is full of. I think um, for for one, it was just the way I gravitated to telling stories. That was right. my kind of. I was like, this funny thing happened to me. How can I tell a yeah. bunch of people about it? That That's just my style. That's what I'm compelled to do. I mm. think because my life also is confusing to people, I find I need to wrap it up in, into a story to make sense for people. Like there's no, at least I haven't figured out how to write zinging one-liners about <laughs> my identity yet, but that's maybe a challenge for myself. But, you know, with my friends, I've always just enjoyed telling stories and that's the kind of comedy that I enjoy which mm. is, is hard in the and I think again that's why I struggled in the beginning because five minutes is not a lot of time you know what I mean really yeah. in the grand scheme of things and my style of comedy there's a long there's a long runway <laughs> do you know what I mean before <laughs> before we take flight and I and I really really enjoy telling the long stories you know mm. I like, and I think the audiences that enjoy my comedy like to come on that, you know, like trip with me. Um, yeah. I'm not the kind of, I'm not like a, you know, punny, you know, laugh a minute. At, well, I hope there's a laugh a minute, but <laughs> a lot of dead air if there's not, I don't know. It's just like my family. We all like to sit around and tell stories. Like I always joke that like, I'm the least funny out of my siblings, but I'm the most like, but I work hard because I'm the second sibling. You know what I mean? I was the middle child for a long time. So, you know, like my sister and brothers are way funnier than me, but I think we're just a family of storytellers, you know? Yeah. And also you said about dedication to the writing. What about improv? How much does improvising on the spot uh, play in your comedy? Oh my God. For the longest time, I mean, <laughs> I will, I will hand like hands up, admit that like, I am not a fast thinker. Like in any, <laughs> in in my life, I am deer in the headlights. Like, do not ask me to do something on the spot. Like I will freeze. <laughs> and even in, even when I worked in advertising, if anyone ever came up to my desk and they were like, hey, can you give me a line for this? I would just sit there and go, no, you, you've got to go away and like, give me a moment. Like, I don't like that. And again, <laughs> like I was always in awe of comedians who could think fast, adapt mm. to like the crowd. Um, I was not that kind of comedian because I was, again, because the way I had learned to do standup was to stay on script. So I was not prepared to go off script. But I think mm. What I learned is the more comfortable you get in your material, the more you do it, the more things don't throw you off. If an audience member says something to you or you get a little heckle, like mm. you can go off piste and come back to it. But yeah. I think in the beginning, I was I was so nervous that anything that threw me off, I couldn't improvise. But now the more comfortable I've gotten in my material, I would say it's really helped me kind of relax. And when I relax, I do find I say funny stuff off the cuff and I'm like, oh shit, like that was funny. Yeah. You know, for me, like I had to learn how to relax on stage because I really wasn't, I was so uptight. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean about being thrown off because if, if a comedian stops the show and asks me, say, Hey, what's your name? Like, I, I, I don't know. I've completely just gone. Forget. <laughs> like, who am I? And I mean, I remember some advice I got, I, I went to go like watch a show and a friend of mine was emceeing and she was so good at crowd work. And I just mm. sat there and I was like, how'd you do it? And I, and she said to me afterwards, she was like, yeah, but I wasn't always like, she said, comedy is always about leveling up. Right. 
you get really good at one thing and then you've got to climb to the next thing. So, and I thought, I was like, oh, she's absolutely right. Because you do your five minutes, you get really good at that five, then you're ready for your 10. Yeah. And you get really good at 10 and then 15 minutes, you know, is a new thing you've got to learn. Mm. And, you know, with emceeing, I, I mean, I'm not very good at it. I've emceed a, a few times now, but she was right. I was like, okay, let me see if I can learn how to do this. So I've emceed a few, a few times yeah. with mixed results. Yeah. Again, I'm just not good at thinking on the fly. All the jokes come to me later. Like when I'm walking home or sitting on the tube, I'm like, I could have said that. <laughs> but I think before you do something, obviously it's, it's a muscle, right? Mm. So what I'm enjoying now is I do more and more, you know, longer sets is that you can afford to kind of go, yeah, things can occur to you in the spot, you know, when your brain is relaxed a bit. But I say that now. But <laughs> Um, also, because of your travels um, in the UK, in Greece, in America, what's your experience of comedy culturally? How do how people approach it, and how people perhaps experience your comedy? Oh my gosh! I mean, like I always think about the you know the different kinds of comedy. I mean, I guess I can only really think about comedy I know, which is you know British, American, and mm -hmm. I would watch you know um, when I, I lived in Italy for for a while, and I always loved how. When I finally learned to speak Italian, like watching Italian, I guess comedy, stand-up wasn't really a thing there when I was living there, but it's, mm. it's become really big. But I liked how physical their comedy was, and it was a very different style of comedy versus, you know, mm. British comedy is very dry, very witty, very sharp, and I, and I love it. Like, you know, I um grew up watching a lot of kind of British sketch, I think we all did, right? Like British sketch show comedy and yeah. character work, which mm. I just loved everything from like Monty Python to Catherine Tate was just to me hysterical mm. and then American comedy you know I remember watching like Eddie Murphy with my parents do you know what I mean which had a completely different feel to it mm. I've never done stand-up in the U.S. but I think I I probably you know would say my style is a mixture of British and American like I can be very self-deprecating I can be a bit dry but I also think you know I can fall into a rhythm of being yeah, like confident and cool on stage too. Yeah. Um, but I think obviously with, you know, streaming now, everyone is getting influenced by everyone, right? There's mm. the styles are kind of merging a little bit. Right. I would say, did that answer your question? I feel like I just talked about. <laughs> yeah, sure. Interpreted it my own way and then went off on a tangent. That's what every great guest does. <laughs> answer the question you wanted to be asked. <laughs> I was like, listen, I hear what you said. I, I'm just going to ignore it and talk about what I want to talk about. Yeah, uh... Very political. <laughs> well, you mentioned influences there. So what are the more direct influences upon your, your own comedy? Is there anyone who actually inspires you? Oh, gosh. I mean... <laughs> Like it's so many. Like I remember, like I said, Eddie Murphy raw. I mean, he was twenty one when he did raw. I think mm. or something like something really young like that. But then I mentioned like people like Catherine Tate. Like I don't know. I just I'm I'm like in awe of their ability to do impressions, right? And you know, observe life and then play it back. Mm. You know. But then I also have grown up watching. You know, the Netflix comedian. I mean, I, I guess they wouldn't call themselves Netflix comedians, but that's where I saw them. You know, like the Ali Wongs. Mm. Eliza um, Schlesinger, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of really cool, confident women who I think are able to talk about their life, but also be, I don't know, like they inspire me because the, they just seem so confident and they can really make fun of what it feels like to be a woman of a certain age and, you know, the modern day. But then I'll look at someone like James Acaster and just go, hmm. your brain, how, how do you, <laughs> how do you? think like that and i love it do you know what i mean mm. and i think 
weirdly, like I don't watch loads of comedy. I would say like when I was younger, I watched more, but I'm a very absorbent person. Right. It's a bit like my writing. Like if I read, you know, a couple books by one author, I find I start to like write. It's like I adopt their mannerisms, <laughs> um, their writing style. Mm. And I found that in my early comedy days, I didn't want to watch a lot of comedy because I remember on the circuit, I would see people and I and I would go, oh, I can see that you're you're doing like your best Ricky Gervais impression. Do you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Or like you are Jimmy Carr. And I get it in the early, you know, it's fine because, you know, art repeats itself and what is original anymore. But <laughs> I just found that for my own protection, I was like, don't watch too much comedy. I really wanted to work on what my voice is, what's my persona on stage yeah. and just feel like, where does my voice go when it's not influenced by anyone? Right. But now, I mean, I think because... Yeah, like in the run up to Fringe, I watched a lot of our shows just to understand how people structured theirs. And yeah. instead of being inspired, I was just like, ugh, like I'll never be that good. So I stopped watching. <laughs> I was overwhelmed by everyone's talent. And then I was like, what do I have to bring to the table? And then I lay down. <laughs> well, I'll ask you what you're bringing to the table in a moment. But just first of all, in regard to watching comedy, I understand that you're, you're talking about there about watching it from an analytical perspective. Are you able to not watch it as a comedian? Are you able to be entertained still? I think less so now. Mm. No, I think now, I mean, I, I I was about to compare myself to like a chef eating another restaurant. Like I have any experience in that. I don't. <laughs> I think it's because I'm watching the, this show about cooking. So now everything relates to food, but <laughs> I can't help it. Like I watch, I just, I'll look at, uh, yeah. When I watch comedy now, I'm like, wow, look how she set that joke up. Look, look how he, mm. you know what I mean? Like told that story. Oh, I like how he, you know, how he walked on the stage or, yeah, I think now everything's analytical. I'm I'm just yeah. watching it from a place of like awe, jealousy, and um like I think when I was in Fringe last year, I went to go see Stuart Lee. Mm -hmm. And yeah, same thing. I, I think I just left like overwhelmed by his talent. And I was like, well, that's cool. Um great. You know what I mean? Um <laughs> So tell me about your show then that you're taking to Edinburgh, your debut hour. Oh my gosh. Every time people say debut, uh, I feel like I want to like curtsy or I don't know, just like show up in like a ball gown. Like it's so funny. Um, yeah, my show is called Off Brand. Mm -hmm. And basically it's it's because I worked in advertising for so long. Um, you know, it's it's a big part of my life. It's how I look at the world. Uh, I was very good at it. And I felt like I wanted to poke fun at that in a way, but also talk about my life. Hmm. So off brand, what it is, is um, my realization that I was, I'm very good at selling things. I could sell everything in my career. I sold so many things, but what I realized in comedy is I really struggled to sell myself. Hmm. Um, I didn't know how to turn that gaze back on myself and go, okay, how do I package myself up into a product that makes sense to people? Yeah. Like I said, I, I really struggle with my identity and, you know, I feel like, you know, products are like jokes, right? Like ads are just like jokes. You've got seconds to get someone's attention for them to understand what you're about, what you're selling, what you can, what you bring for them, yeah. how you can make their life better. And in advertising, people will just skip past your ad or close the tab or go make a cup of tea. And in comedy, it's, it's the same thing. Someone can just, you can feel an audience not like you or not warm to you. Yeah. And like I said, I've only got seconds to kind of explain who I am. And this show was finally me going, okay, you've got an hour. You've got an hour to talk about your life. And there's so many things about you that people wouldn't know, yeah. right? 
And I feel like because I, when I was doing comedy before, I only had five minutes, 10 minutes. So I would always go for the like the easiest gag, the lowest hanging fruit. Okay, let's make fun of my American accent. But actually, <laughs> you know, you get to know me and this accent is a product of so many different countries. And actually, I may sound like this, but I have had these other life experiences. So hmm. the show was me going, okay, let me look at my brand. Yeah. Look at look at what is the brand of Bronwyn. Do you know what I mean? And what can you learn from this branding exercise that I've done for myself? Yeah. And uh, you know, spoiler alert, we may learn something about ourselves towards the end of the show mm. that um, you know, about human nature and 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 my thoughts on branding. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting because I I like to ask comedians how much of them the real them we see on stage. So as a as a branding exercise, are we getting are we seeing the the real product? What are you what you're advertising of yourself on stage? Is that is that what we can expect from you? I think so. <laughs> well, I mean, is it false advertising? I would say slightly in that I've I've kind of um, sold the show as as a kind of you know way to teach yourself how to to brand yourself. But really, it's it's a show about my life. Yeah. So. Okay, slightly, yeah. Maybe there's, <laughs> fine, there's some fine print and T's and C's that you know should have been on the post. <laughs> but I would say you're getting, yes, you're getting Bronwyn like the comedian and like the performer. Yeah. You know, I think I am telling really, you know, stories that are really fundamental to who I am. Like, you know, I, I open up about my my history of anxiety disorder. You know, mm. I've had panic attacks since I was a kid. They were a really big part of my life. You know, and there's yeah. never a chance to talk about that. I I moved to Italy when I was 17, not just because I loved Italian culture, but because I was obsessed with a football player. Like, <laughs> it, I don't know, like you wouldn't guess that about me. You know what I mean? Like I have, like I said, I think I come across as a, as a confident person, but actually you get to know me and I am confident in certain ways, but I'm also just this 37 year old woman who wants to stay inside and like eat cheese. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't really want to do it. Like, I'm not this super driven, motivated person that I come across. Like I like staying inside and doing nothing. Like yeah. that's what I've learned about myself. I think <laughs> so. I think it's a story that has like, yeah, like it's a bit confessional. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. and I, I debated when I was when I was doing the show. I know everyone's debut is kind of like biographical, mm. and I was like, oh, should I talk about something more important? Should I try to make a statement about? I don't know, the state of the world or, yeah. but I thought, no, it's, it's my first hour. And I really want to use this, the space and the time to introduce myself because I feel like I've always felt so guilty about, you know, explaining my life to people. Like when you're a third culture kid, mm. the worst question someone can ask you is like, where are you from? Because there's, it just, you're like, Oh God, how much time do you have? Yeah. You know? And I feel bad that like, it's not a quick answer and it doesn't make sense to people. And I feel bad that they have to sit and listen to my life story. Mm. But I, I felt like with the show, it was like, no, like this is your life. And, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about it. It's your experience. And even if you haven't lived in five countries, there are elements from it that are relatable, I think. You yeah. know, I mean, whether it's society, whether it's you chased a man that you had never met to a foreign country like as a weird 40 teenager like sure who we all did that <laughs> so do you have um expectations from Edinburgh Fringe you've done it before so last year I did I did um thank god I was persuaded just to go and like dip my toes in the water yeah so last year I did like a split bill one week and it overwhelmed me and I'm so oh. glad that that was my introduction yeah. because 
like I said, I'm a sensitive little soul. I like to go to bed <laughs> same time every night. I like to get eight hour, hours of sleep and eat well and exercise. And mm. suddenly you're in fringe and it's this overwhelming place where I don't know, like time doesn't exist and neither did like green vegetables. I don't know. It was just, it was a lot. <laughs> it was, I found it like I was so inspired every day, but also so tired. Like, mm. like I said, I wish I could be someone who was cool enough to be like, yeah, I'm at fringe. Like I love every moment, but the highs were so high, but the lows were so low. Like, mm. you know, bombing to a room of eight people for half an hour. You're like, why am I doing this? You know? Mm. And and I'm very, I take things very personally, but this year, I think my expectations are, you know, initially I was like, I want to go up there. I want to like win loads of awards, get loads of recognition. And then I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, you don't. I think <laughs> like, again, awards are like competitions. It's like, of course the recognition would be amazing. It would be yeah. nice to get a validation of someone going, Hey, we think this thing that you spent a lot of time working on is really good. Hmm. But then I also know that it's just, it's dangerous to look at that as the metric of success. And again, luckily my career in advertising prepared me in a, in a, in the way that like, sometimes the best ads aren't the ones that like won awards, but they're the ones that people talk about. Yeah. Um, and I think with my show, it's, it's important for, for me. I'm, I'm probably just like giving myself advice out loud right now, which is that like awards would be nice, but I think what I really want to get out of it is to like survive doing this thing for a month. I'd be really, I mean, I'll be really proud of myself. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it takes real stamina to go anywhere and do a show at the same time every day for an hour for 28 days, hmm. you know, like for me, like success is just making it to the end, like in one piece, you know, but yeah. let's see what happens. I think, you know, maybe lower my expectations and that'll be good. Then I can't be disappointed, but <laughs> yeah, we'll see when you're there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it's like, Everyone, you know, I remember walking around last year and seeing all the like the four stars on the posters. And I was like, God, will that be me one day? But like, like I said, reviews are nice when they're nice. But God, like when they're bad, it's 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 soul destroying, you know. And I think I'm I'm just I just want to get through each day and know that like I went out there and I did the best I could, you know. And yeah. I remember doing a gig last year at Fringe. It was a like a, a late night gig at a, I think it was called um Spank. Um, it's like, I think they, it was their last year doing it. And I was just so grateful to be there. I was so happy to be in a room full of people. Um, and the comedian that went before me was this really awesome Canadian guy. And like, he crushed, you know, and I remember thinking like, Oh God, like he just did so well. What are they going to make like another American woman? Who's going to go get up there and talk about her vibrator for 10 minutes. Like, is that what they want? And like, I did really well, like, you know, I got laughs and it was great. Mm. And afterwards I went to the toilet and these like four girls came up to me and they were like, oh my God, like, we're obsessed with you. We love you. You're our favorite person of the night. And it's not that like, you need that every time at a gig to, to remind yourself that you're, you're doing okay. But I think it was nice to go, oh yeah, like my material resonated with the people it was supposed to resonate with. And that is really important, you know? Yeah. You talked about there a little bit about feedback. Also, you mentioned hecklers earlier. How do you respond to people who either shout out in the room or who come up to you after the show with comments, suggestions, or just sharing the love? How do you respond to those kinds of people? Oh, God, I'm still learning how to, to be honest. Yeah. I think maybe the spaces that I've been performing in have are, are really um, 
I think really warm and and I have very well behaved audiences. I think obviously the more you do it, if the mm. more club nights I'll, I'll I'll do, the less I can depend on yeah a well behaved audience. Because <laughs> um, I've heard horror stories. Do you know what I mean? And I've definitely done like I've done a couple gigs on like a Saturday night in central London, and you can you can feel them mm. getting feral. Like I said, it's it's helpful to have an American accent because I think I get on stage so confidently they all quiet down. Mm. So I'm lucky that I can raise the volume of my voice and it it commands the room a little bit. But I've been heckled a couple times. Like sometimes just people feel like they can talk to you in the middle of a show and you're like, what are you doing? Mm. And I never want to be mean. But at the same time, sometimes you do have to shut people down. So I often just try to acknowledge them for a moment. Like... Hey, I get it. No, I know. That's great. And then try to get back on with the show. Yeah. Or I'll try to tell someone like, I, I love your enthusiasm, but like, you know, and try to tell them just to, to be quiet. But I think my problem is like, I'm still learning how to, to go off piste. And I, I found like one night I I did a, I hosted a show and there were these really loud guys in the back and I just went mean. And I don't know why that's not in my nature, but I think mm. I was so irritated by them Yeah. because they were so loud that I think I said something like, hey, like what's happening in the back over there? And I think a more seasoned MC would have been able to kind of coax them into like, I don't know, but I just feel like I went mean teacher on them <laughs> instead of actually, you know, I don't know, dealing with them in, in the right way. And then it alienated the room. So hmm. I guess that the, the answer is I'm, I'm still learning. And as for, uh, you know, the comment about feedback, you know, it's funny, you get people coming up to you and they'll say the nicest things or you'll get you'll get people who come up and go, wow, I don't normally like female comedians. I don't normally yeah. like Americans, but mm. you were really good. And you're like, okay, thanks, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's not a compliment. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and it mostly comes from women, which is weird. Um, mm. But like, again, I, I think I've just been really lucky. Like I, I, I've never had anyone say anything mean. I mean, when I did that blackout gig years ago and I bombed, I went outside to have a cry because I cry all the time. And some some guy came up to me and was like, hey, I thought you were really good. And that was worse. I was like, go away. I don't need your pity. I need to go like sit on the tube and like stare out the window and think about my life. But learning, it's a learning curve, right? Yeah. So what then have been the best and worst gigs so far? Let's do with the worst so you can get it and then end on the positive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I mean... The worst gig. Let's see. There's so there's so many. I mean, <laughs> I've got two. All right. The first one was I had I was, you know, still working in advertising and I had a shoot all the way in Peckham. Mm -hmm. And then I um had signed up to a gig in Camden and there was tube strikes that day. Yeah. And I'm the kind of person like if I say I'm gonna do your gig, I'm doing it. I don't I don't bail unless I really am ill or like cannot make it. And I really probably just should have not gone to this gig because <laughs> logistically it was a nightmare. But I was like, I'm gonna do it. And I had to sit on a bus for like two and a half hours to get from Peckham to Camden. And yeah. it was like chaos. Like I the bus just stopped halfway through the journey. I had to get off and try to get back on and you know, there were, it was just horrible. And I'd been at a shoot all day and I was tired and hungry. I hadn't eaten. And I got to this gig and there were like four people there. And like the, you know, the host was not great. And the, the, the audience, if you could call them that was like three <laughs> American tourists who had wandered upstairs and then one drunk guy. And I just sat there and I was like, why? And I know it's not like the, 
the material itself didn't go badly. But I remember just thinking like, you have got to learn to set some boundaries. Like you need to know when is, you know, it's okay to say that you can't do something because it's not worth your time. Hmm. You know what I mean? And like this one drunk guy just kept piping up. The minute I walked on, to, I, I would say stage, it wasn't stage. It was a microphone in the middle of the floor. Um, <laughs> he was like, oh, you're American. Are you a Trump fan? And I was like, I was like, what? No. Um, so that was annoying. And then I think yeah. the other bad one I would have to say was last year when I was doing my split bill, mm-hmm. I was still definitely finding the flow of the show. It was a, it was our third third night, and I had done that gig the night before at Spank, and it had gone well. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going back to sit down, um, and I ended up sitting next to Stuart Lee, who I told you was like one of my comedy idols. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, well done, mate. And I was like, oh my God, Stuart Lee just saw me do well. This is incredible. And <laughs> I was doing my split bill in the basement at the stand in Edinburgh, and he was doing his show upstairs in like the prop, like the big theater room. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I recognize your face from the posters. You're at the stand. I'll come to you. Go. And I was like, well. And then the next day we sold seven kits. And one of them was Stuart Lee. And he came in and he sat there. And I think I got like four laughs the entire like half hour. It was excruciating, like <laughs> quiet, quiet, polite laughter, which is worse, I think, than no laughter. And you're just like very aware that like, your your hero is like watching you and i couldn't i just remember thinking like oh my god like time is a construct like every second felt like years mm. and i remember you know everyone's like oh it's fine he's probably been in those situations before and i was like i don't care like it felt horrible yeah it just felt shit and then afterwards we went outside and he looked like take a photo and I was like, Oh, well, at least you saw me yesterday do well. And he was like, yeah, he's like, yeah, I mean, I didn't have my hearing aids in, so I couldn't hear your, your set, but it looked like it went well. And I was like, what? So you don't, you didn't even like hear, you know, you just, ah, it was awful. That was my first like big cry to my mom. I think she called it like the worst moment. It was like, how's it going? And I was just like, awful, just awful. But you know, <laughs> Here we are alive. Yeah. What about the best? I would say the best. Um, so, I mean, to this day, I have to say the Funny Women Awards because mm. that was my first time performing to that many people. It was a big theater in Bloomsbury. Yeah. Um, I had like there was quite a few people like, you know, my my brother and his boyfriend came and I don't think they'd seen me do comedy in a while. And then like some friends and. I was, again, really nervous. And I think because when you get used to doing longer sets, five minutes actually doesn't feel, it's like, it's so fast. And it Mm. it made me more nervous that I would somehow forget, you know, my material because it was so short. And I got out there and I got the first laugh and I remember relaxing into it and just going, God, this is fun. Like, is this what it feels like to have that many people in a room laughing? Like this feels, this is, this is amazing. Cause I, you know, I'd only ever done kind of, I would say, yeah, like, like I said, open mic night rooms, which they're really hard to gauge if people like you. And Mm. it was just so gratifying. I had so much fun doing it. I loved my set. I loved the energy that the audience gave me. And I just felt like even if I hadn't come second, it was still one Mm. of the best experiences. So I loved it. And also like, there's this great, um, comedy club called the 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 bill murray near yeah. angel mm-hmm. and it's just such a great space and the room is always full and maybe because i've just 
I don't know if it's just luck. I've, I've never had a bad gig there. And I, and I did one, there was one day like work had gone badly and I went to do like a 10 minute set there and I was tired and I just wanted to go home and I got there and I don't know, the room was just electric. Everyone was, I had done a joke. I make a joke about dating Australians and the room was full of Australians. It was just everyone <laughs> was in it. And I just kind of left feeling like, oh gosh, I wish they could all be that great. Mm. You know, I love it. Just I feel like when the stars align, like the audience are up for it. You find that weird reserve of energy at nine o'clock and yeah, yeah just yeah. I asked you about what you wanted from Edinburgh and you used the phrase earlier, metrics for success. Do you have ways of measuring your success? Do you have targets, objectives you want to achieve other than five-star reviews, other than awards? Do you have like, oh, in five years from now, I want to be able to play this theater or do you have things like that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so, I mean, obviously one one metric would be being able to live comfortably from like the income being, you know, um, yeah. I think it's really hard. Do you know what I mean? And I've talked about this in things I've written about fringe and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't, I don't understand how people afford it. I really don't like, you know, yeah. so for me, success would be being able to live comfortably. You know, I'm a single independent woman, you know, I don't have any support and it would be nice to make enough money that I could live comfortably from comedy. That would be great. Mm -hmm. um, I have dream. you know, for me, I I don't, I'm not, I don't have, I don't dream of like packing stadiums. Like that doesn't feel intimate to me at all. I, I love the smaller, I love, I say smaller, but you know, like a hmm. hundred, 200 people, like that to me would be ideal. Like success to me would be, there's a, I live in Crouch End and, you know, I, I've gone to see shows at like Alexander Palace, like mm -hmm. to be able to put on a show that I know people in the audience like my comedy and they're coming to see me, like doing that room, like that that would be amazing you know of course i like, dream of like live at the apollo but that's just because it just looks like such a fun gig but mm. um and i would love to write a write a tv show like i would mm -hmm. love to that's initially re like why i got into stand up is because i wanted to write a tv show about advertising and i didn't know where to start and i thought the fun like com like stand up comedy would be the best way to kind of force myself to do something and write and prove that i was funny and then stand up's kind of taken over and like every other comedian now, I just have some dusty script <laughs> sitting in a drawer somewhere, a digital drawer, a tab on my computer, but you know. <laughs> so what are the big lessons you've learned so far? What philosophies have you formed for going forward? Oh, whoa, what a question. Um, life <laughs> philosophies. The big one, this one is actually something I've thought about a lot and it certainly applies to comedy too. I think, and I'm going to like butcher my own thinking here. I think what I've learned from comedy is we are all raised in this, not all, but I think a lot of us are kind of brought up in this scarcity mindset that there's not, there's not enough room, right? Mm -hmm. For, for us, there's not enough jobs to go around. There's not enough partners in the world for us to find. There's not enough, you know what I mean? Like there's no space. And I think that that is a lie. I think that there is enough to go around. And I think with comedy, especially, like I said in the beginning, I really didn't feel like there was room. You know, I felt like, oh, we already have, you know, a mixed race, curly haired American community, you know, so why do we need another one? Do you know? And then you realize, hang on, there's loads of people. And I mean this for, for men too. It's like hmm. the amount of male comedians I've heard say things like, well, I guess no one wants to hear from me. And I'm like, that's not true. Like, that's not true at all. People, yeah. everyone's story is valid. Whatever your experience, if you want to tell it, you just got to 
find find the audience that wants to hear it, right? It's not about, it's not an attack on you and you mm. will resonate more with some people and less with others. That's okay. Do you know what I mean? So I think one of my biggest life life learnings is that, you know, again, is what does success look like, right? Mm. And is it the kind of accolades? Is it getting featured in lists and PR and press? Or is it like how it makes you feel? And for me right now, like, you know, I know that I'm a slow learner. Like I don't, you know, but when I get something, I get it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think I just have to like really be patient and trust in the pace of my life. You know what I mean? Like when I was starting out in the open mic scenes, like I said earlier, I would see people gigging all the time. Right. And what's interesting to me is some of those people are debuting the same year as me. Right. So we've, we've all been doing it the same amount of time and we've gone on our own separate journeys but we've kind of come to this destination together, right? Whether that was from me, you know, keeping my full-time day job for as long as I could because I needed the money and I also liked my job Mm -hmm. and not quitting, like I think was right for me. Do you know what I mean? And for the people who committed to comedy full-time, but they're still debuting the same year as me, that was right for them. So I think it's just really learning to kind of have faith in yourself and the timing of your life and know that like things happen at the right moment and when they're supposed to. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like I said, I entered competitions a couple of years ago and I just, I never seemed to do well. And I think I just had to get comfortable, relax into my material. And that was when things changed for me, you know, and that's my own personal experience and it can be different for someone else. So yeah, comedy is a great teacher of life. It really is. Well, I'm going to ask you about that. right now but very briefly beforehand how can we find out about you how can we find out where to come and see you before so um you can find me on instagram at um broncom um that's where i tend to post everything it links to my website broadwinsweeney.com where you can buy tickets to my fringe show i'll be on at the pleasance courtyard bunker three every day at 3 20 except the 14th because i will be uh lying in bed all day uh <laughs> recovering um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter got hacked annoyingly. So I lost all my followers and all my tweets and I'm slowly rebuilding. I know awful. So yeah. So, um, Instagram, the Broncom uh, or Broncom Twitter, the Broncom and, uh, my website, bronwynsweeney.com to find tickets to my, any upcoming shows. Fantastic. And finally, Bronwyn, the question I ask all of my guests, how would you sum up comedy in a nutshell? Uh, okay. <laughs> I would say in one word, it's necessary, right? I think we need it. I think it's necessary. I think comedy, because life is so hard and stressful and scary, uh, it is it is an essential way to process the world and what we're going through because laughter sometimes is the only way to get through it, you know? Mm. Um, I'm not saying it's going to fix everything, but <laughs> it really helps. So I, I find it like a very necessary art. For myself as a performer, it's necessary for me to process and get through, you know, things that have happened to me in my life and laugh about them. I think for audience members, it's necessary because laughter really can help us um, get through what we're going through. And I think comedy gives us permission to talk about very serious topics and poke Mm -hmm. fun at things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to say or pay attention to. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, I I think it's necessary and essential. Mm. Bromley, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. 